Welcome to the third series of the LT Chat Show. My name is Roger Saunders, Associate Professor and University Teacher Fellow, and this podcast is about all things teaching and learning in HE. I hope you enjoyed today's show, and if you'd like to participate, check out my contact details in the episode description. Welcome to the LT Chat Show, and today I am pleased to say I have with me Sarah Johnson. Sarah, would you like to tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Yes, thank you, Roger. Hi, my name is Sarah. I am a midwifery lecturer at the University of Central Lancashire. I'm a nurse and a midwife by background, and I've been in education for just over three years now. Uh, okay. Um, so how long were you a practitioner? Well, I was a nurse from 2008. So I worked as a nurse for a few years, and then in 2014 went to do my midwifery training and qualified in 2016 so I was in practice for four years or so so I was a specialist midwife in infant feeding for the latter part of my midwifery career. Okay and and how are you finding teaching are you teaching students who are general nursing or going specifically into midwifery? Into midwifery so I teach at the Burnley campus at UCLAN and so I'm course leader from September so yes purely midwifery we do quite a lot of interprofessional education though which is really great so I have experience teaching the medical students physician associates pharmacy nursing so we do quite a lot in terms of multi-professional discipline working so which is really nice before they get out there into practice and, and have you found that there are particular skills from uh, your time as a, a nurse or a midwife that actually transfer quite well into the into the classroom Yes, absolutely. Thinking on your feet, <laughs> having <laughs> to be dynamic, <laughs> thinking quickly. Yeah, absolutely. I think when you're teaching, particularly a practical course such as midwifery, all that experience and knowledge from nursing and midwifery is really helpful. So giving students lots of examples, particularly if they come back from placement and they're having challenges, giving them strategies that they can work through that may find helpful. And because I'm linked at Burnley and it's East Lancashire Hospitals Trust, and that's where I used to work. And I've got really close connections with our colleagues in practice and similar to our colleagues on the Preston campus. We know our trust so well, which I mean, life is about relationships, in my opinion. So it's really great that we've got that close connection still with practice and we work really closely with them to support the students and they have that wraparound care. Okay that's that's interesting because I've, I've worked with quite a few people uh, based in healthcare including amazingly enough quite a few uh, people involved in teaching midwifery um, and general nursing and, and the two things that have always struck me is number one uh, and again, I'm I'm going to make an awful generalisation here because I'm sure this is probably not true. Maybe it's just the people who move from healthcare into uh, teaching, but great communicators. Um, and I think it's the, not just the breadth of experience, but the difference. So whereas some people might come from a background where they are dealing with with different things, but within a, a sort of relatively constrained area, if you like. Um, but the the range of things that, uh, you know, the people that I've met have experienced is is really quite um, fascinating. And I think you, you mentioned being able to think on your feet, I guess, agility of mind in terms of, you know, what you know and the situation that you're facing is, is probably something else that's that's quite prevalent um, in, in the background that you've come from. Today, we're going to be talking about neurodivergence, which clearly is an important subject for 
for us as uh, lecturers, particularly when we're thinking about things like uh, equity, uh, diversity and inclusiveness. But, and we did discuss this very briefly before the, the recording started, one of the things that's maybe overlooked, I'm not sure, certainly it's something that's only been brought to my attention in the last year or so, uh, is the fact that, of course, this is something which affects staff as well. And you're going to talk to us a little bit today, I think, about your own personal perspective and personal journey. So can you can you lead me through this? Because one of the things you did do was um, you corrected me when I used the term neurodiversity into using neurodivergence and perhaps yeah, if you can talk a, a little bit about that as well, that would be really useful. Yes, of course. So, yeah, let's pick up on neurodivergence, first of all. So neurodiversity. So if you go into a football stadium, then that is a group of neurodiverse people. So in terms of their brain development, how they think, how they work, everyone's very, very different. If you go to, I'm trying to think on my feet as always um, <laughs> if you go into a dyslexic support group or an, an autistic support group that is a group of neurodivergent people so neurodivergent is not the typical I suppose so I'm neurodivergent because I have dyslexia and ADHD so if someone's brain is I mean what is typical but typical then they would not be neurodivergent but they are neurodiverse because they are you know the population is as a whole does that make sense i'm with you yes no absolutely um and, and again i think from my perspective as somebody who teaches marketing of course we're always trying to lump people together um into mm -hmm. groups and as a lecturer one of the things that i'm always trying to do is to make sure that students feel that they're being supported as individuals so in, in that mm -hmm. sense that is to do with neurodiversity because you know how they think and their their history and their background and their experiences and their knowledge and their understanding is always going to be different um even if they've got you know other similarities so Take me to the through the 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 two conditions. Then, uh, when were you diagnosed? Had you suspected prior to diagnosis? Mm -hmm. um, what was life like for you before you had the knowledge that there was a, a you know a label that could be applied? Yeah. So, I suppose I'll start from school. Um, I'm laughing because I was the class clown. I did I did all right. Ah, did so. <laughs> yeah. And. Um, Primary school, fine, did okay, just above, I think, national average or just above national average for SATs. And then going into high school, particularly on reflection, hitting puberty, I mean, I was absolutely phenomenal at getting detentions every Wednesday after school. I mean, I was consistent, at least in that. So class clown, messing around, making people laugh. And when I think about it, that was because I was struggling with my schoolwork distractions if there was any distractions whatsoever I'd be lost I wouldn't be able to work the noise around me so did again did all right at high school managed to get eight GCSEs A to C and then reset my maths failed reset my maths again because I knew I needed my maths and did actually get it when I tried in the end uh, did all right got a B and then um, went to college quit once went to college again another time worked in hospitality for a few years and then my mum was a nurse and a midwife and I sort of knew I wanted to either be a teacher or go into health so I went into health um back then you didn't need um 
A-levels. So I managed to get in with my GCSEs and did a diploma in nursing and again, did okay. Then went into midwifery and that is when life just slotted into place. So no diagnosis at this point, did extremely well in midwifery. Now I know that's because I was hyper-focused. I had an obsession almost with midwifery, with women's health, with feminism, social injustice, and like loved, loved, loved it. I had two little children at the time as well. And thankfully my husband was brilliant supporting me. And then I was going back to do my master's um, again at UCLan. I genuinely love UCLan and never stay away from it. Um, and my mum had just had a diagnosis of dyslexia. And I was like, I really think you need to go and get this. Um, you need to be screened. And I, mm, I've always had to work, in my opinion, much harder than my peers. So once I'd returned to university and there was a student, it was free for the assessment rather than the £700. I mean, let's not start talking about elitism when you can't afford a diagnosis. So, yes, was um, actually coincidentally was the day that I interviewed for this role, went for my screening and then... Um, had the diagnostic and yeah dyslexic so I was 34 at the time and um, I remember being at work and my results came through and I cried for a few different reasons I cry at everything that's <laughs> I cry if I'm angry sad happy cried feeling like I've been let down all my life that no one's ever picked up on this cried relief in that there's a reason that I've always thought I was thick or my science teacher actually told my mum I'd never amount to anything at school and yeah it was relief and then thinking oh is this why I'm thick I mean I've I'd got a first at university I'm, I'm obviously not but this is obviously internal how I felt and then fast forward a couple of years my oldest daughter who's now 13 she was significantly struggling and very very difficult in terms of getting her some support eventually she two years ago had a diagnosis of autism and ADHD had no idea what ADHD was thought it was little boys running around like you know mm. crazy you know, off yeah e-numbers um and that I've speaking to other people that's how many people think but when I started reading about it it was a light bulb moment and think oh my goodness particularly for girls and women so I went private for the diagnosis for me but mainly for my daughter so I felt like she could sort of blame someone because it, it's huge in terms of um, genetic link and it was an absolute revelation. I cannot begin to tell you how much. So this was last January, so um, January 22. So it's just, you know, not too long ago. And I just understand myself a lot more. I've done a lot of reading and research and a uh, bit of a plug for the adult, uh, the ADHD adults podcast uh, by three incredible people have really helped me to understand myself a lot more. Yeah, sorry, I said I didn't waffle on the talk. <laughs> oh, no, 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 not, not, not at all. Trust me, I, I would have jumped in. Can I just take you back a, a second? Because obviously one of the things I was going to ask you is is what prompted you to um, to ask for an assessment. Um, but clearly, and one of the things I, I must confess I wasn't particularly aware of is the degree to which perhaps there's, there's a genetic relationship. So your mum, who I assume, given that you'd already mentioned your age, was quite old then when she went yeah, for an assessment yeah. so do you know what the thing was that that prompted her to to do that because having sort of spent most of your adult life presumably coping with something 
that you didn't even know you had. Um, what was there a, a particular trigger factor for her that made her do that? Yeah, she went back to university to do a module. So she did a right. module in midwifery, and I can't remember if someone mentioned it to her or someone had been talking about dyslexia in general. And she thought, oh, actually, again, she was doing a module and, and thought, okay, I can get this. I don't have to pay for this. So yeah, she, so if I was thirty-four, she must have been fifty-four, and. Right. She very, very recently has now also got a diagnosis for ADHD. So dyslexia went, so it was my mum, then me, now both of my daughters for in terms of understanding, having it. And then ADHD was my daughter, then me, then my mum in terms of right. diagnosis. Do, do you happen to know what the percentages are in terms of, you know, or is it just that there's a great a likelihood? Because I know there are various factors which can... Um, you know be passed on genetically it's not always a guarantee mm -hmm. but there's a, a sort yeah. of higher likelihood I've got in my head now I, I don't know if this is correct so around about 80 percent is hereditary she's right. huge isn't it so but I don't know if that's I'd have to have a re-look re at the evidence and just confirm that um the the ADHD adult podcast because they're academics who run it, they talk a lot about evidence, which is really great, the quality of evidence with any of the topics they're talking about. Okay. We'll we'll put a link to the other podcast in the yeah, episode description mm -hmm. for, for this one. Um, so can I just ask you specifically about uh, the conditions that you have then? Because clearly I have some knowledge of these things, having spoken to people and having watched uh programs and my concern is always that I, I am perhaps not always getting accurate information so I, i'll give you one mm -hmm. uh, classic example uh, my wife and i love watching comedy programs and uh particularly if they're sort of grounded in a reality i guess uh, there is a program on uh netflix uh, i don't know if you've seen it it's called atypical yeah um and it's it's about a youngster um who has autism and mm -hmm. how his family copes and and we liked it because there was a kind of reality in terms of the relationships between the people and it was funny um, but at the same time it presented a version of something where you're thinking uh, okay I am concerned. I don't want to assume that everybody who is autistic is going to present in that way. And, and you know, I, I am aware that autism represents a, a spectrum. So clearly, there you know, they're going to be different um, uh, representations. Uh, that's the wrong word, but uh, presentations of mm -hmm. uh, of autism, depending where they are. If if we could start just with the dyslexia, is there a particular way in which your dyslexia manifests itself? Were yes. there things that you did to cope with that? And has that actually changed since your diagnosis? Yes. So one of the things that, so I won't remember all those questions. Oh, ever. okay. No, that's fine. gone now. So what was the first one? Sorry. Okay. So the, the, the first one is just, um, does your dyslexia or did your dyslexia, oh, I'm assuming that it's going to be the same. Does it present in a particular way? Is that, you know, if somebody asks you to describe, well, what's it like being dyslexic? Is Is it possible to could sort of create an image for people mm -hmm. yes I think it's important we mentioned this before we started with it my experience is my experience and you know like the program that you're watching this is my experience only and this is my anecdotal evidence so what I don't want listeners to do is think that that's the way it is for everybody you need to learn and understand each individual that you 
know that you're supporting so for me it's particularly working memory hence I've completely I forgot those questions that you asked me that's literally fine. seconds after um, and auditory processing so I I can read absolutely fine, but I might read it. And and a lot of people have this though, who you know don't have dyslexia, but I'll get to the bottom of the page. I'm like, what have I, what, what, what's just happened? No idea what I've read. So, and that's that's with fiction, that's with reading for work, that's anything that I read. So what I've now done in terms of because I know that I didn't know that before. So I would just read and then I would reread the page. So if I'm marking, for example, I'll download um, the original document and I'll put immersive reader on on Microsoft and I'll listen to it and read it and I can read at an insane speed it sounds it, when my colleagues listen like what what is that because my, my brain works really really quickly but without listening and reading at the same time it won't retain that information right so that's one example um I write everything down. I've got this, you can't see obviously for those listening, but I've got a really great um, product called Remarkable 2 that I got through access to work that I can write on it, I can read PDFs on it. So that's really helpful. I think because I've got the diagnosis, I've read more about it and I've learned more about it so I can get software and strategies that help. Some I had before and didn't realise and that's one of the reasons why people with dyslexia or neurodivergence in general quite often are out of the box thinkers, because they've had to work around it and get those strategies throughout all the life. So, so what would what would have been one of those um, strategies? Because the second question was, you know, how did you cope before someone actually explained to you what it was? Mm-hmm. I think I just had to do things over and over. Right. definition of insanity that isn't it <laughs> doing things over and over and expecting the same result but... I, I I guess so I mean there there is a thing because I'm I'm also for reasons that I'm not going to go into because they're they're a bit boring and I don't I don't want to uh, be frivolous about uh, the context but uh, I've done quite a lot of acting in the past and, and certainly when I first started I was one of those people who would try and rope learn and that just doesn't work for me so I, I tried lots of different things until I arrived at the thing that worked you know and I, I'm guessing because my own experience of, of having spoken to people who've been diagnosed in later life is that one of one of the reasons perhaps they didn't necessarily realize that there was a specific condition is because they do exactly what you, you said that you just cope you adapt you know a bit like if you've got poor eyesight and so you know you wear glasses or whatever without necessarily thinking about you know what, what was actually happening so clearly it has changed since since the diagnosis I am fascinated by the idea of being able to read and listen to something at the same time um, both in terms of whether or not that would actually help me with with marking um, but also thinking about my students then and how information is provided to them mm-hmm. and whether we could actually make audio recordings of the stuff that we only currently produce in text form I mean obviously you you mentioned you have some software which helps you to do that mm-hmm. yes I mean so our university has uh, Microsoft I know many do some use other things like other but Microsoft is absolutely phenomenal for inclusivity accessibility the you know, the software, the tools that are already embedded on there, like Immersive Reader, Read Aloud. So if you go on Microsoft Edge, for example, 
many websites will read aloud to you. It changes the whole website slightly so that the background color is slightly different. Not all websites do this, but it's, yeah, it's much more helpful. So I'll quite often go in that if I'm struggling to, because I really struggle to read on a white background and black text or PDFs primarily. Yes. Funnily enough, I, I worked for a long time for a, a national charity that actually did work with lots of other charities. And one of the charities we worked with um, was the RNIB. And uh, certainly the one recommendation that, that stands out for me from that, because it's something that I've always then tried to do, uh, was to actually have uh, black writing on a pale yellow mm-hmm. background. Though I appreciate, because uh, I've got a friend and one of his daughters is dyslexic and I think she uses a a, a color filter but it's a different color I think it's either blue or green and mm-hmm. as you said right at the beginning you know, one of the important things to I guess take on board is is that you know this isn't one thing it's a whole load yeah. of different things and, and therefore you need to you need to think about that I, I am intrigued by the idea that um, there's an immersive reader and correct me if I get any of this wrong that's actually embedded in uh, Microsoft Edge and I know, uh, or certainly it feels like there's a real push to move towards specific browsers. And Edge seems to be the default one that comes up quite a lot. Um, but you have triggered off in my head uh, whether or not things like our assessment brief. And it's funny that you mentioned PDFs because we've also been asked to produce it in dual version, PDF and Word. Mm-hmm. Um, but in both cases, those are black text on a white background yeah. and purely text. And I'm wondering whether it would be helpful if someone, me, sat mm-hmm. down and actually just read it. So there was also an audio version mm-hmm. available. That That's that's really interesting food for thought. I don't want to move off dyslexia just yet. Are there other things that that you do or you found help? Um, Dragon is software that you can dictate, which is... Right. Really, I mean, again, Microsoft do have Dictate in a lot of their things, such as uh, Outlook, um, Word. I don't think Excel. I'm not actually sure. Um, so I say to students often, okay, just dictate it. Get you, particularly at that writer's block moment when you're like, okay, what am I doing? Just dictate the information. So I do that quite a lot. Or right. I, on my watch, I'll if I've got a note, I. I forget things so often so I'll just dictate a little thing and it'll go to straight to my emails so really small I suppose, yeah strategies that have helped um using Microsoft Planner I don't work for Microsoft just to say it, was, <laughs> it just integrates really well uh, Microsoft Planner is my absolute favorite app because it links into everything and it reminds you it looks nice I like things to be aesthetic because it gives me that dopamine fix yeah. so I suppose it's organisation because that's one of the real challenges with dyslexia and with ADHD for my presentation anyway and for a lot of people. Okay. Um, in fact, you've just reminded me of something else now. So a, a few times, and I've actually discussed this with colleagues, I've seen presentations on people giving feedback, um, sorry, giving audio feedback and as an alternative. And I have mm. suggested uh, the idea before, though, uh, we haven't done this and I'm thinking I, I actually two of the modules I look after are actually relatively small so it would be possible to do this but I was thinking about the uh, the potential of saying to students you know you could have your feedback as audio if you wish and now I'm thinking there actually might be some students for whom that would be better 
yeah. or possibly that we could offer it to them in both formats mm -hmm. um so I, I have been writing stuff down while yeah. we've been talking because I, I definitely don't I don't want to forget any of this stuff. No, this is what um, we do, actually, in terms of feedback. So on their front sheet that they um, have, they can say audio or written, and we do that. And I think the thing about audio feedback, particularly if there's some constructive criticism, you can say it, tone of voice is so important, isn't it? Yes. You can say it in a kind way so it doesn't feel as harsh. And I've had it as a student as well, and it was that that triggered me, like, oh, actually, she's it doesn't feel... I think particularly with ADHD, there's something called rejection sensitivity, where you can be more prone to feeling, oh, and I think a lot of people do that, just pick up on the negatives. So I think it's really helpful. Again, relationships and having that tone of voice is helpful. And that makes absolute sense to me now in terms of how some students have reacted. I am very or try to be very careful when it comes to feedback and one of the things I'm very keen on rather than just saying this is wrong or you didn't mm -hmm. do something is to actually phrase it as um, either you could have or you should have um, and that's also in part because I want feedback wherever possible to act as feed forward but I think you're right yeah one of the things that you know one of the, I hate social media I don't think that comes as a surprise to anyone who's mm. listened to the podcast or indeed who knows me for many many reasons I mean it's a necessary evil um, but mm. one of the things that I've noticed in terms of the way people interact in terms of um, sort of messaging services although I, I guess younger people maybe that's one of the reasons why they use emojis or emoticons as much as they do is that they lack tone of voice and so it is very easy to misinterpret um, or to be unclear uh, in what someone's trying to say because you don't get that. That's that's been really interesting. So moving on to the ADHD, and I guess the, the same thing, really. I mean, you've given us some insight into what it was like sort of prior to diagnosis. But have, have you been able to identify any coping mechanisms or changes that have specifically applied to, to that aspect? Yes, so I am on medication. So this was something I toyed with with such a long time, particularly being a midwife. So I read some evidence, well, read a lot of evidence, randomised control trials, how, I mean, just on a side note, it's really interesting though, thinking about evidence and the patriarchal society that we live in and thinking, where has the research been done for ADHD particularly and for autism actually? It was primarily, well, it was all initially done on boys, so young boys, um, and that's why women, girls go can very much go a long time undiagnosed because they don't present in the same way. So ADHD is um, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. So some people, so there's three types. So you can have um, some are attention deficit hyperactive and combined. So I'm combined, but my hyperactivity is my feet so my feet my toes wiggle all the time and um, I don't I'm not kinetic in terms of like I move my hands when I'm teaching when I talk but I don't constantly fidget and squirm so much so that my husband was like no you don't have ADHD you don't move you don't fidget but yeah. I always do my feet or well, we've been married for 15 years my feet are constantly moving where have you been <laughs> and with women and girls the hyperactivity is predominantly in the brain in the mind cannot switch off really struggle to sleep that type of thing so because the research and the diagnostic tools the Connors test is, is never done for girls and women then it's 
very much so that they're misdiagnosed um, or undiagnosed completely. And it's a huge, huge challenge, particularly with puberty because of the hormonal challenges and then uh, postpartum and then menopause. So I was saying to my daughter's consultant recently with her medication, I feel like she should be titrated in correlation with a cycle because I can see that the medication works extremely well at times and then at other times, depending on the cycle, isn't working as well. So, I mean, how can you develop an RCT for that? I've no idea. But right. it's very it's very complicated for women and girls, more so because of hormonal effects than it is for boys. I haven't answered the question that you asked, have I? This is what you I do. <laughs> well, no, I, 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 I guess you have, but you've also made me think because... Um, I'm not well again because it's one of those things that I guess people don't share in in you know in in the uh, arena in which we're in I don't think it would be unreasonable for me to say uh, how many pills a day do I take I think I take six pills a day so I've got one statin three uh, blood pressure at the moment I'm having to take uh, a hay fever tablet so that idea of medication being this oh my god you're having to mm. uh, I, you know I, as I've got older I guess I, I've come to understand that it's it's an aid like any other and, and whilst you know we might be quite happy with mechanical aids because we can see them and see what they mm -hmm. are um, maybe you know sort of a, a pharmaceutical aid is, is a little bit more concerning I guess now the, the sentence started somewhere along the lines of I'm not sure I've ever met anyone who has described to me what the impact of medication for ADHD is, but I have met people who've been on things like, for example, Prozac, where mm. uh, that was to deal with a specific issue, but the person actually then, they were desperate to come off it because they said, yeah, I don't feel X anymore, but everything, it's like, it's like everything is foggy. So from your perspective, do you notice how the medication impacts on you you're putting a face yes. on <laughs> yes guessing there is something to share yeah and I cannot this it, this has been oh my goodness I cannot tell you I didn't realize uh, initially I was like all right okay so at first when I was being titrated I was quite lightheaded still for about 10 minutes in the morning after about about an hour after the medication I, I feel physically sick sometimes I can get um can't brush my teeth after my medication because it makes me feel sick but only for a short period and I get a little bit lightheaded so I think right it's kicking in and then the days I don't take it either I've forgotten because I haven't done my normal routine or the biggest thing foggy absolutely that's what I expected but the most unexpected thing for me is the emotional dysregulation so I said very early on I cry everything always have been a crier always been told I'm soft I care too much I'm such a sympathetic crier my daughter left primary school this week and everyone who cried I cried oh with them <laughs> like, <laughs> my daughter was like oh I hope you're okay Evie. but everyone else oh my goodness oh my goodness and I hadn't taken my medication so yesterday when she did leave I, I took my medication and I wasn't as emotional so one of the things with ADHD it's your prefrontal cortices that are I don't want to say underdeveloped but are let's say different atypical so that's my emotional regulation so I'm very reactive I can and ADHD for a lot of people particularly younger people very very quick to anger from nowhere which seems small so I am reactive and I know this within work the medication curbs that a little bit and um, it justice insensitivity so I 
crusade for everything and anything which is emotionally draining, like really tiring. Some things are not my fight, but I fight them anyway. And mm. so that's a, a really difficult thing. So the medication, I think, just curbs that a little bit so that I can manage and cope. It's still there. It's someone once described it as um she called Jessica McCabe so she's got a really great YouTube channel for ADHD for women and she described it like you're watching when you have ADHD you're watching TV and you someone else has got the remote and they're constantly flicking the channels and I was like oh my goodness that's exactly what it's like when I take the medication the channels are being flicked but only every 10 minutes or so so I can get a little bit so right. it just and it definitely makes me more focused. So if I try and mark now without or I'm still a student, so I try and write, absolutely no chance. Whereas, well, I must have I did do it before. I just must have struggled a lot, lot more. And I it's the hyper focus, I think. I used to say that ADHD was my superpower when I got diagnosed because that is the reason I've done so well in midwifery particularly because I've been hyper-focused on midwifery because I live and breathe it and genuinely love it but for me it's fantastic that my hyper-focus equates to my work but for lots of people it doesn't and that's one of the reasons why people with ADHD are far more likely to not be in um, a long-term job role because their hyper-focus doesn't align and mine does, but not always. I can't pick and choose when. So I can't say, right, I've got two days blocked out for marketing. I'm going to be absolutely hard focused on marketing on those two days. No, my brain won't let me do that. And I think one thing to note as well, that it's been particularly in the media at the moment, ADHD is on the rise. Everyone's got ADHD. I think everyone has traits of ADHD, but not everyone has ADHD. I think yeah. when you have, it's, you know, some, again, spectrum, some's more severe than others. but it can be crippling in terms of procrastination, I suppose, or a class clown at school and not actually being able to get things done that you need to get done, particularly at this time of the year for us in health. Our students are still in and we need to plan for next year and I have to get things done, which means for me working evenings and weekends because for many things I take longer than other colleagues to do. Yeah. Unfortunately, we (coughs) we are sort of coming close to the end. I just wondered if there was any advice you can give. And I, I'm guessing, to be honest, because I, I know when we originally spoke, the idea was um, for us to think about uh, staff. And I, I do think that's uh, that's important. And and maybe it's a you know, it's one of those conversations that needs to be gradually brought to the fore so that people feel that there is a, a safer environment in which to, to share such things. But I'm, I'm going to ask you a question now. And um, to be honest, I'm going to assume that this would help. Uh, with both staff and students and mm-hmm. uh, you know as I indicated earlier a load of the stuff that I've written down here is stuff where I'm thinking oh I should be doing this I should be doing because these are all things which are going to benefit my students but if you could give some advice to to a colleague I mean maybe you've given this advice to colleagues who are mm-hmm. working with you or somebody like myself who may well be working with people who have either identified that they have been diagnosed or maybe they just have traits Mm-hmm. whether or not they've been diagnosed is there something that I could do to be more sensitive uh, to someone's uh, situation mm. I think like I've said my experience is my experience so asking colleagues you know is this something that may help you I suppose we don't know what we don't know and so we 
this year co-founded um, myself and two colleagues, a staff neurodivergent group, so a support group for staff, which is really fantastic. It's been really great. And, you know, when the colleagues say, right, what is it that, you know, you've asked me the question. I'm like, oh, I mean, I'm a co-chair of this group and sometimes I forget. I don't know what helps because I just do it all the time. I think just be kind and empathise. We all have our stresses, don't we? I think just try and get relationships, try and get to know what's helpful for other colleagues and what works for them. And if we think about inclusive design for learning that we promote and try and do so much for students, if we do very similar things for staff, we are people too. And I think that's one thing that our university is really working on. So they're working really closely with our group and trying to understand because we can't pour for an empty cup and I say this to students all the time so staff who have to support students well if they have some form of neurodivergence a long-term condition how can they help others without having that support for themselves first and understanding that so I think it's trying to yeah ask the questions help each other out speak to HR get an occupational health referral and access to work so it's not always that you need a diagnosis to get support from access to work it's a very long-winded situation and challenge that is very much written when okay I'm someone with challenges with the executive function and you're asking me to do these ridiculous forms but very similar to um DSA, Disability Student Allowance. Students, and I know this as a student, have to jump through hoops on fire, I feel, to get the support that they need. How mm. is that equitable? Where is that support? So I think the systems need redesigning, but as a start, it's speaking to others and building on those relationships. My One of my colleagues, we both teach the same modules but across the different campuses and we've worked together so much now that we know each other's strengths so what my strength is can be my colleague's um, area that she doesn't work quite as well in and vice versa so bounce off each other and say right I really enjoy the organization the planning the putting things together and you know she she enjoys other things like the writing I'm like oh no so finding those opposites are really great sometimes because you can work together and ease the load but finding your tribe as well I think that's the thing for me and I do share with students a lot to role model I think I'm in a position now that although I hate it I, you know I can't get away from it that position of power where they see me as hierarchical and I, I don't like that I want we peers these are women or predominantly women um, and who are going to be out there in the world working as midwives. I'm a midwife still. These are my peers. They may be students at the moment, but three years max, they won't be students anymore. They're going to be peers. And they are at the point of when they're on the course. Obviously, I need to maintain that professionalism. But I think trying to break down that hierarchy and say to them, and I do share often, because I want to try and empower them to not celebrate, but accept divergence and say right this is what works for me it may not work to you have you thought about this and there's many students who have supported that have since got a diagnosis so when I read someone's work I'm like oh I was right like this and then referred so yeah I think finding tribes if yourself are not neurodivergent then learn and ask questions be an ally 
and you know like we do with so many marginalized groups I feel like neurodivergence is a marginalized group that isn't discussed enough Mm. and is not reported on enough either that we need to start doing more. Okay I mean that's been absolutely amazing and uh, thank you so much for sharing what's you know clearly quite a, a, a personal story it's brought up so many things that I'm thinking oh yeah yeah should definitely be doing that and and again that idea of um of just starting the conversation I think you, you know you're absolutely right if we want to be truly inclusive then we do need to um create a space for for everybody but for the moment at least uh, Sarah thank you so much for for sharing all of that with us today that was that was truly amazing thank you absolute pleasure thank you so much for inviting me you're welcome